The thing we forget is when we say precise number, we've got assumptions behind that. So you have to ask precise in what way, precise under what conditions. All of that ultimately wants to be what I call driverless marketing, but it requires this entire data supply chain. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast here once more. Episode 27. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? Good to see you again. Doing well, Shaheen. Good to see you. All right. We've got a packed agenda. Let's do it. What's new? Okay. We're going to start with another cartoon. It's Cartoon of the Week. This one's a little serious as a cartoon. It doesn't have any big pictures and things like that. It's a little hard even to describe. I can post a link to it on my Twitter feed, at Atomic Adman. But the cartoon looks at precision of numbers versus garbage. And it starts off at the top. It has an equation, which is precise number plus precise number equals slightly less precise number. And I love this because so few people respect what happens with numbers. And yet we live amongst so many numbers in business. We've got to start respecting these kinds of things. So it starts with precise plus precise is slightly less precise. Then it goes to precise times precise is slightly less precise. And then it gets to precise number plus garbage equals garbage. And precise number times garbage equals garbage. And we probably want to stop at that moment and just talk about those. Because I think the really key question, probably in a lot of listeners' minds, is, wait a minute, how can adding two precise numbers be less precise? So why don't you start with your discussion of it? We both have our own point of view on it. My initial reaction was, that's right on, because when you combine precise numbers in any fashion, whether it's plus or times or whatever, you are now essentially measuring a new function. Mm -hmm. And if that new function is dependent on other variables that are not included, you're not going to have the benefit. So if you're lucky, you're going to be slightly less precise. If you're unlucky, you actually get garbage. Mm -hmm. So in other words, in order to get my new number, what I really need to do is add precise number, precise number, divide by other number, you know, multiply by this number and take a sign of that number. Just adding a two numbers, you got garbage. Right. Now, this is the case where you are, in fact, measuring something new mm -hmm. that is dependent on those two variables. Now, you brought up that even if you're adding the very same variable, or allegedly the same <laughs> variable, or you've taken an average of two different ways of measuring the same thing, that also is fraught. Yeah, you know, the thing we forget is when we say precise number, we've got assumptions behind that. So you have to ask precise in what way, precise under what conditions. And if we say this number is precise, we really need to know everything that goes into saying that number is precise because maybe that you were talking about measuring conversion rates and you get a conversion rate number out of Google. Well, Google has a whole bunch of assumptions that end up generating that conversion rate. So if I say my Google conversion number is 3000, I have to know what the assumptions were that may go into counting those. Because every time we count anything in business, we're making assumptions about what's validly countable and what's not. Then when we compare it with a second precise number, which might be our company's internal 
conversion rate, we're probably using different assumptions. So here we have two precise numbers, one precise according to Google standards, the other one precise according to our standards. You can't put them in the same equation. Right on. So I think what I find actually routinely is the same label is used on actually different things. Mm -hmm. And conversion is a great example of that because going from one stage to another stage is a conversion. But from what stage to what stage and for what precise user action? And so they're both precise according to how they were defined. But if you start combining them, then you're just getting a toxic acid. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with so many managers that just want to say, well, let's just average the two. Uh, you know, no, do not average the two because you've now introduced entirely unknown garbage into your number. Right. You know, it's not even right. slightly right. less precise. It's <laughs> exactly. unknownly less precise if you do that. I think the other thing to talk about here that is important is what we were talking about with garbage. So from those initial equations, it goes into a whole bunch of them with garbage, you know, and I don't agree actually with all of its ideas. Like it suggests the square root of garbage is less bad garbage. Um, no, that's not true. I, as a mathematician, no, that's not true. And there's a bunch of those things. I think you nailed it with your view on garbage. So why don't you give us your, I mean, you know, garbage is an important thing to talk about. I just think that there is no such thing as acceptable garbage. <laughs> you mean like once garbage, always garbage? Absolutely. I think that this is the kind of stuff that causes planes to crash, right? I mean, you remember the temperature sensor or something that had iced up yep. mm -hmm. and therefore it was misleading the pilots. And of course it's dark and you don't know where you are. And so if it's going to lead you astray, then the only scenario under which you can actually use it is if you know precisely by how much it is off. If you're measuring something and you know that it is consistently somewhere between 20 and 25% off, that's okay. Right. Because so you've got predictable errors and you can account for that. And you can say that, okay, it's 20 to 25%, so it's within this range. And if I was going to make the same decision, regardless of where that number is within this range, then I'm on relatively solid ground. But if it is unknown garbage, then you have no idea. And if you square root it, it's, you still don't have any idea. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, I have had situations where I treat the Google conversion stuff as garbage. Because what you never know with it is, you know, if you're looking at conversion, what did it start with? What's a valid lead to be converted? Is it looking at the same pool of responses? So you put an ad out on, online and Google is following it. And then somebody logs in under a different username. You don't track. They may have seen the ad and they may actually be converted through that ad, but it won't be allocated to you through the Google conversion stuff. So you lose these incredible amounts of thing. And then Google puts out something that just says, oh, here's your conversion rate or here's your conversion number. And it, it could be garbage. And you have to look at those kinds of things. And it's very difficult. So, but I think maybe what we should do is let this lead us into your data comments of the week because yes. we wanted to make sure we were having a regular data topic. So talk to me about data topics. Yeah, this is a good segue for me to finally come to my sort of data quote roadmap. Mm -hmm. So actually consistent definition is the place to start. Okay. Accurate measurement is the second place to start. Mm -hmm. And then consistent measurement is the third place to start because invariably, especially in marketing, data is a streaming data and you're going to want to do time series analysis and you want to know how you fared compared to last year this time or last month this time. 
So if you change the definition in January, well, then you can't compare to last January because what you measured last January was something else. So consistent definitions and measurements is really very critical. Once you have that, you want to focus on quality of data. The word I use often is that the data is like a pinball. And as it pinballs around from data sources, we just talked about Google Analytics, Google Ads, and then you've got your CRM, and then you got your ERP, and then you got the website. So you got three, four, sometimes five sources of data, many of which try to measure the same thing, and they pass data to each other. Your UTM parameters come into the website. What if they're not in the right permutation and you're not reading them properly because you didn't write it like that? So, you know, the throwers and the catchers can miss each other. If the catcher expects seven items and then you are sending it five items and it's like five, four, six, two, the wrong number and the wrong permutation can introduce error. Right. And you never know it because a lot of software will just accept the five not issue an Absolutely. order, never tell you that it had a wrong, even the wrong quantity of variables come in and just go, okay, plug them into the table and you have no idea. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, you are lucky when the data types are different enough for you to say, well, hang on a second, that doesn't look right. You're also lucky when whatever number you're measuring is zero. Zero is a very good number to get. This is like a, you know, my new, new mantra, zero is a good number. Because zero is very clearly telling you that something isn't there. So if you expected it to be something, it raises a flag and then forces you to go find out whether or not it's zero. But if it is like a number and it's a wrong number, you could like not notice it for months. And guess what? When you do notice it, your time series clock resets. So now you can't do comparative analysis. I think the comparative analysis is particularly tricky in those people who keep data reservoirs and things like that. Because I think a lot of data does get kept in those where you have five years worth of conversion rates and yet no, you know, you may not have information to tell you that the conversion rates aren't comparable. You are absolutely right. And every time you change the definition of a variable, you need to introduce a new variable. So if you had conversion, call it conversion two, conversion three, conversion four. But it must be a new variable, otherwise you can go astray. Now, the reason why people have a data repository data lake or whatever you want to call it, is because you've got multiple sources of data and you have to rationalize those numbers into a single database and a data repository allows you to do that, a data warehouse, whatever you want to call it. But is this kind of one of the problems in data, which is the idea is we bring together all this data and we're going to be enlightened by magical discoveries through it. And yet inherently from what we've just talked about, bringing together disconnected data and analyzing with it is fraught with danger. It's not that you can't find things. It's just it is very dangerous and you have to approach it with tremendous care. And I don't see that care being exercised very often. Well, along those lines, my view consistent with what you're saying is that it is time consuming and it is expensive. So therefore, it's not for everyone, right? If your marketing budget is minuscule to begin with, in my opinion, you don't have the wherewithal to instrument your funnel. Your money is probably better spent doing more programs based on the expertise of the people who are running them, who kind of have a feel for what is good and what is bad. Because the moment you decide, and it requires a strategic intent, and those words mean something, it means that you're going to fund this thing for the duration. You now have a shot at eventually getting there, but it's going to take longer, and it's going to be more expensive than most people, possibly your CFO, possibly your CEO, are going to kind of expect. So setting the expectations properly up front 
is really important, which is really why I think having a roadmap for your data is important. And you're working on such a thing, are you? You kind of get involved with big data and with AI and with marketing data and the use of AI and data in marketing. So all of those are like always bubbling. And it's been a world that we've been living in. So a lot of like hard-won lessons have been gained. So my view is that if you have the right descriptions and definitions and accurate measurements in a consistent way, now you're eligible to have good data. So the next step is good data, good quality data that you trust to guide you. The next thing is that you want all the data. All the data that's available needs to be in there. Why? Because if you have good data plus all the data, you can all look at the same data. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the sales department is looking at some data, the marketing department, field marketing, operations, finance, they're all looking at their parts of the elephant and you need all of the elephant. And you need to be able to say that, are we all looking at the same data so that we can collectively decide how to balance and manage the portfolio? So now you got good data, all data, same data, what do you do next? The next thing you do is to try to see what this data describes for you. You're not trying to take any action, right? You're just saying, what does it tell me? After that, you're now in a position to start diagnosing whatever problem that you might see or whatever opportunity there is to do better. So you go from descriptive to diagnostic. Can I add in, one of the things I have my students do with data is ask questions. So in other words, when they, when they get a report, my first step with them is to say, what questions should we ask based on this report? Because I think we jump too far to diagnosis. Oh, well, we got a problem because of this. No, 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 no. Don't jump there. Don't go there. You got to start yes. with, this doesn't make sense. What's going on? Now, if you take that question, you can go dig into it and find something. In fact, the next step after that is new data. Because when you see what the data is describing and what it isn't, mm -hmm. and what it is allowing you to, to diagnose and what it isn't, you now demonstrate where you have gaps in your data. As you know, all data comes from under lampposts. So now you know where to go plant new lampposts in your funnel such that you can capture the data. You do that, you just reset the clock. So this is why it takes longer <laughs> and it's more costly. And you now need to go write new code and spreadsheets, analytics, analysis. So you've got the new data armed with that descriptive diagnostic thing. So now you're finally able to be prescriptive. Doing so exposes new data that now you need or triage, or policies. Sometimes it's a matter of policy. There are five different ways of looking at it. For clarity, when you say prescriptive, you mean now you can read the data, you can trust the data enough to say, ah, I think I see actions we should take. Exactly. Now I can say that, you know, I'm going to reduce that campaign by 50%. I'm going to use that money and half of it goes to this other campaign. The other half goes to this other marketing mix altogether because ultimately you want to optimize the marketing mix. Now, you have to be careful. As you know, one of my favorite quotes is that if you think big enough, you'll never have to do it. So this can easily be really, really complex, something that you're intimately familiar based on the book you're writing. So this stuff really, really can be complicated. And you've got a, a relatively wide marketing mix. You're doing branding, nurturing, activation. There's a big matrix there. And every one of them is a bucket of money and you want to optimally allocate this to improve the business for now and for the future. Whoa, that's a really tall order. And that's what every one of us gets asked to do. <laughs> Especially because data, we can learn about things that we can do and maybe optimize and maybe help and the like. But you know, one of the fundamental challenges and complexity is 
nothing is actually fully predictable. It's just reality. And economists, one of the really interesting thoughts economists will bring up is, smart ones, is that there's a difference between when you make the decision and when you measure outcome, there's always a period of time. And so you make your decision, what changed? You know, stuff changes. Google starts measuring different. Oh, great. Yes. Uh, I didn't need that. You know, and and it's not to say we can't do it. It's just a caution of that's exactly what we do. Get to prescriptive. We say, okay, I think if we do these things, it's going to balance out about right. And it's useful to do it, the humility to say, and I can't fully predict everything. Right. So I think this is where policy comes in, where you say that based on this data and that data and the other one, based on customer lifetime value over one month, three months, two years, five years, and how I would like to really drive the business, I'm going to set some policies that we're going to do it this way in a consistent way. And when you do that, you can start getting predictive within those policies. And if you gather more data and now incorporate some AI, all of that ultimately wants to be what I call driverless marketing. There will come a time when we will do a lot more of it than we do right now, but it requires this entire data supply chain to operate with consistency, with accuracy, all the kind of pitfalls of data. Now, you think of it that way, then you realize why it may not be for you. It's a really tall order. It's expensive. It's time consuming. But if you want to do it, that's the way to go do it. Well, and as you're saying that, and I realize you know, we're depending on things like how Google defines values. And yet we know with Google that they are known to change on a whim and not really tell anybody. And I don't mean that to blame them. It's just weird when that stuff happens. I had a client who suddenly a policy at Google changed and a, uh, a partner website that was sending them 25% of their business disappeared overnight. That's right. The algorithms change. Also, you have ad blockers. You have users that are focused on their data privacy. You've got GDPR in Europe. So as a marketeer, sometimes you just don't have the data that you used to have. So you can triangulate it through other means that where you do have the rights to actually gather the data, to analyze it. And then when you put it across the marketing mix, it becomes even more difficult. But that's the assignment. Should we move to a topic where a little bit of policy might have been helpful? Yes, it's a good time to do that. (laughs) I love that you sent this one to me, which is the, you know, most people in marketing will be aware of the Anheuser-Busch controversy that has been circling for the past two or three weeks. And in short, a VP of marketing for Bud Light has been, quote, reassigned And what happened is this VP of marketing Okada campaign where they did a partnership with a woman named Dylan Mulvaney, who is trans and is kind of a trans influencer, TikTok page, you know, all the, you know, usual hoo-ha of influencers. And it blew up on them. Now, what I didn't realize until I dug into it is it, of course, it blew up on them. They put her face on the Bud Light can. And, you know, there's a difference between, hey, let's do a partnership with an influencer and let's put that influencer on our can. To my mind, I'm I'm just kind of shocked that that happened. And apparently what Bud is saying is nobody approved it, that this woman was out there acting as a loose cannon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. Bud's trying to cover their butt right now. And I don't, so I don't know what exactly to make of it. So your thoughts. My thoughts. So when I read the quotes from that the lady who was driving this, it all sounds really fine to me. She says that 
I mean, I'm going to read the quote, some of them. It says, if we do not attract young drinkers to come and drink this brand, there will be no future for Bud Light. Mm-hmm. The beers we feel marketing explained last month. Quote, what I brought to that was a belief in, okay, what does evolve and elevate mean? It means inclusivity. It means shifting the tone. It means having a campaign that's truly inclusive and feels lighter and brighter and different and appeals to women and to men and not just sort of a very subset of the audience. And then you brought up the quote that the CEO of the company had made, and that's towards the end of the article, where she says, we never intended to be part of a discussion that divides people. Okay, good kind of prelude. But the next sentence really is the brand. He says, we are in the business of bringing people together over a beer, right? Mm -hmm. So the quote from the VP of marketing and the CEO are highly aligned. So where's the problem? Why is it that this sort of led to this? Now, part of it is because it attracted attention and activist attention and sort of politically charged attention. And I think when you're trying to do that, you want to kind of keep that in mind. And it may be as simple as that. That sort of, if you want to do these campaigns, you want to have all the ducks in a row and make sure all the executives and the distributors and everybody is prepared for it and they're not surprised. Hey, we're going to go and like do this and we think it's innocuous, but it's going to look like a battle to others. Do we really want to do that? So I kind of concluded that it was too much, too fast without sufficient preparation. And that was the flaw, not the objective. Yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, if you read the objectives, I am great with the objectives. I think the CEO's comment is such a brilliant part of their brand. I mean, getting together over a beer. But the actual campaign they did, given the political climate, was anything but get together over beer. I mean, I you know, nobody should be surprised that this one blew up because we know how volatile the issue is. And I think there's millions of ways to support full inclusiveness of everyone, including trans women and trans men, without having to, you know, what do they call it? Poke the tiger in the eye. You know, you don't poke the tiger in the eye. And it could be that this is part of the problem we have, we have had for a while with social media and a lot of the internet style marketing is that you get huge, quote, engagement when you poke a tiger in the eye. It doesn't mean it's productive engagement or useful engagement or engagement that leads to growth for your company, but you do get a lot of people talking about it. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I remember a quote when Burger King went having serious troubles from their agency, from somebody around that said, well, you know, the Burger King ads may not have moved the needle at retail. Well, that's the whole purpose of the ads, but we'll ignore that. May not have moved the needle at retail, but it got people talking. There's no benefit to the brand of talking without it leading to purchase. So we've got to be really careful about those things. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say, I seem to recall another beer company a few years ago who actually brought people from opposite side of the political spectrum and got them together over a beer for them to have a chat and they relaxed and they got a lot more on the same page. They realized that they were actually more in common than not. And, you know, they're all human beings. And so this actually is the power of what they could have done rather than rather than what happened. So I think that, you know, it's a good thought and the objective is right, but maybe there is more appropriate ways of doing more successful ways of doing it. I think absolutely there are. I mean, I, you know, for me as a consumer marketing guy, putting her picture on the can was inappropriate. If you're thinking about bringing people together, that's not going to do it. 
So and maybe have- it wouldn't be a year from now when you kind of come up with like brand ambassadors across the spectrum. And they all get their, you know, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. I mean, over time that changes, but at this point in time, with the culture we face today, that was a complete misstep. And I don't know what to make of Bud's observation that well, this happened without full approval. So I don't know if that's just covering. Yeah, I don't know. That can sound a, like a bit of a cop out, but yeah. it, is, it is what it is. Yeah. What? A major corporation doing a cop out? Yeah, Actually, maybe you need better processes. Yeah. I want to get back to that one thought that you offered out of this, which is in reading the article, you gotta wonder why there are so many layers of uh, executives at Anheuser Busch. Because the number of people referenced in the article, they have a VP title, is huge. And they do say that's one of the problems is that senior executives were too far from the action that was happening. Isn't that right? Because we live in times where you do need to be a lot closer to the front lines. Yeah, the further and you layers don't help you. Much. Yeah. So let's conclude with that quote that you had. Because that also was topic of some fun conversation. All right. So this one came up, and it's a quote from Lori Anderson, who I'm not personally familiar with her work. But she says, if you think technology will solve your problems, you don't understand technology, and you don't understand your problems. So I picked it, sent it, because I'm like, well, there's a large degree. I run into a lot of people who grab technology on its own saying, well, tech's going to solve my problems instead of focusing on the problems and figuring out what's going to solve them. But I think you have a different view on this quote. Yeah, I have a few. I need to like set up a website that says like all quotes are wrong (laughs) or all memes are wrong (laughs) because I get it. And in the context of what I believe she meant it, it's very valid. Right. You know, technology is not a solution to many problems, but then kind of my, you know, more rigorous side kicks in and says, well, it depends on the problem. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish. It's sort of like how people say, well, we should not be selling products, we should be selling solutions. And my response is that, well, one person's product is another person's solution. It really depends, you know, I say, well, you know, when you buy a drill, you're not buying a drill, you're buying a hole. You're trying to say, okay, fine. But, you know, if I'm like a contractor, I really want a drill. Thank you very much. Don't, (laughs) I, I, Uh I know what I'm talking about. I want a drill. Don't mm-hmm. tell me about the benefits and, you know. Here's one of mine for you. Well, don't sell features, sell benefits. Well, that's why Crest did so well as the fluoride toothpaste, correct? You know, oh, <laughs> Oops, you know. And I think what we have to do is these broad pronouncements, these universals, and actually this was part of complexity is, you know, we're in a business that seeks to make universal statements that apply to everything. And they don't exist. I actually, well, I mean, in a in agreement, I think that coming up with something simple that is generalizable and general is very attractive. And when you get it right, it is pretty sweet. So I'm not suggesting that we should stop striving for that because I think that's wonderful. But it is also really, really hard. You know, that's why you get like the Newton's law of motion and then there's like nothing for centuries. It's really hard to come up with those like sweeping statements. And that's really what happens with the meme. So are there problems for which technology is the solution? Absolutely. Are those the problems we're talking about in this context? Probably not. So a lot of the quotes I see need to come up with a caveat, you had to be there. You know what's interesting, (laughs) I'm going to give you a little complexity theory thinking on that one, which is what's happened since Newton is that everybody wants that level of impact from their universal statements. 
Except yeah. the only way to arrive at a universal statement is to get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower on what you're doing. And so we get all these universal statements. They're like, well, this is the universal truth. And if they actually told us within what parameters, we'd be like, what? I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't really I mean you mean it only works in one out of a 10,000 cases. That's uh, right. <laughs> and that's the real truth of it. But the desire to replicate Newton is so big that they give us these universal statements and then, I don't know, somehow forget to put the qualifiers on. That's and, right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's one key error that actually has led to the need for us to look at complexity because not everything can be dealt with through universals. So. Right on, right on. All right, so let's conclude, as I like to say, this episode. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Doug. Absolutely, Shaheen. Thank you. All right, take care all. See you next time. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.